Well, as we have gathered this morning, we <laughs> hopefully you've picked up on it, but we, we have gathered on an assumption. And maybe you don't hold it, but the majority, the majority of us do, and it's a correct assumption, by the way. And it's this, that Jesus is God, and that he is good, and that he loves us, and that he is for us, and that he is worthy of our praise and worship. That's why we're here this morning. We sang songs lifting up God, lifting up Him seated on the throne. Let us adore Him. So with all that assumption, is that fair to say that's why we're here? So let me ask this. Have you ever been at a family gathering, a social event, out at the park, at school or at work, um, or, and you're ha- uh, having conversations with people or they're having conversations with you, what are the two historical, relatively recently historical, no-nos of social topics that you are, should not discuss in conversations? Anybody want to say what those are? Politics and religion. <laughs> Well, maybe I'm misreading it, but it seems like politics gets talked a lot more um, back on the conversation table. But let me ask you this. Why is it, in those settings, why is it that when somebody dares to speak in a praiseworthy way of Jesus or in an honoring way of Jesus at one of the, any, anywhere we might have a conversation, outside of a Sunday morning at church, why is it that oftentimes the conversation just seems to go dry up and people start acting like hurt animals? Or there's a muffle of nervous, <laughs> awkward laughter and someone quickly tries to change the subject. Have you, have you noticed that? Am I living in a, in a vacuum when I, <laughs> when I notice that? It's a reality, isn't it? Why is that? Why is that? Well, hopefully we're going to see that this morning. So would you open your Bibles to John chapter 7? Hopefully we're going to get a picture and a little bit of an understanding of why that might be this morning. I'm going to start where we left off. I'm going to start where we started last week to give a little bit of context. So John chapter 7 starting in verse 37. Hopefully you have a Bible. And and once you've gotten there, would you please stand with me as we read and and honor God's word this morning. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? 
So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You can have a seat. See, Jesus has come and he proclaims he is the one to whom all who are thirsty should come to and believe him. The most valuable person has shown up. The one whom everybody is designed to be with. And he tells them to come to him and drink. And what happens? The air gets tense. And the people, rulers and common people, are divided. There was a division among the people over him. This morning we see that when the Christ comes, he divides. Now he's not divisive, but when the Christ comes, he divides. Christ's very appearing divides. Why? Well, there are a lot of things in our world right now over which people are dividing that they need not be. Let's just call that straight out. But there are some very important things that need to be divided. So let's jump into this text. Number one, Christ divides righteousness from hypocrisy. So as we look at this text, we're going to start in the middle of it, verse 45. And you'll remember from and hopefully you'll remember from verse 32 of John chapter 7 that the, as soon as the whispering about Jesus in the city rose to a low roar, the rulers, this council of, council of Jews, the Sanhedrin as they're called, sent out temple officers to arrest Jesus. Now the question we want to ask right now is why do they do that? Why do they send out... Why did they send out officers to arrest Jesus? Well, I think as we talked about last week, Jesus is a threat to these leaders. <laughs> and Jesus can be a threat to rulers and leaders today. He comes and by his very presence and words indicates to them that they are not ultimately the ones in control. All the leaders of this world, from presidents to kings to supervisors, even in the home to fathers, all are accountable to him. And the Pharisees, who added rules to the rules to make sure that the rules were kept, were exposed by Jesus as hypocrites. 
because they expected everyone else to follow their customs while conveniently exempting themselves from following unfollowable rules, unrighteous rules given by unrighteous people. And Jesus is showing up and exposing them as hypocrites. And when he does, the temple officers return to the Sanhedrin empty-handed. The officers then came to the chief priests, verse 45, and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? So there's this group of hypocritical leaders, and we'll get to a little more of why they're hypocritical. And then there's the officers that they sent. Officers of their temple guards, their Levites, who are charged with the stability, the security, and order of the temple. And how do these guys respond? Well, frankly, they respond unhypocritically. You see, these guys could have cited being afraid of the crowd or that there was too much activity going on to get Jesus. And they could have said any number of things in order to save their own skin from this very strict group of rulers. But how do they answer? They answer righteously. Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. <laughs> and nothing exposes hypocrisy more than righteousness. And Jesus, who is himself righteous, divides righteousness from hypocrisy when he comes. That's why when he speaks, no one else speaks like this man. And so, so they give this righteous answer. No one ever spoke like this man. Jesus came among and spoke as one who had authority, not as the scribes. <laughs> and so they give this answer. The officers give this answer to, to the rulers. And what happens? The rulers get ticked. <laughs> and what happens when rulers get ticked? Well, typically they expose their hypocrisy further. And they expose their hypocrisy by rebuking the righteous response of the guards. And they turn on the crowd. Listen to this, verse 47. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now just think about this. Do you know <laughs> how hypocritical this is? Do you know how hypocritical it is to say of a crowd over whom you rule, this ignorant crowd who does not know the law is accursed? Do you want to know why that's hypocritical? They condemn an ignorant crowd when it is these leaders who are charged by that same law to righteously shepherd God's people in understanding that law, in understanding God's righteous ways. But instead of doing what they're supposed to, they power grab and say, it's the crowd's fault. Us leaders know better. Now when we read Scripture, we are not to read it dispassionately, keeping our emotions over here. 
while the text is over here, okay? We are not to be the church of the frozen chosen. We are to read this passage, and when we read this kind of hypocrisy, we should be angry. We should be angry. God is righteously angered over this, over this hypocrisy. Over and over again, God sent prophets to Israel telling his people, especially the leaders, to repent, to turn away from leading falsely because the leaders at that time, over and over and over again, were failing to shepherd the people and lead the people in the way of God. And they were failing to walk as examples of godliness to his people. It's hypocrisy. And I say all that, and we should be angry about that, but I say we've got to be very careful too. Yes, we ought to be angry when the people of God are not cared for and shepherded. We talked this morning about, in Sunday school about how much worth is the worth of a soul. And the leaders of God's people are to shepherd their souls. And when I think about that, that really sobers me up. Because God has sent Jesus, the one whom he proclaimed he would, and now Jesus, the chief shepherd, has finished his work. He has ascended into heaven as is our advocate and high priest. And what has he done? He has established in his church and in local congregations what we might call under-shepherds to spiritually oversee his flock. And in the Bible, what those people are called are pastors or elders. They're shepherds. And God has a wonderful and awesome calling for us who are shepherds and elders, who are pastors, who are, and who are to be that. It's a, it's a, it is a calling to be aspired to, the Scripture says. If anyone desires to be an overseer, which is another way of saying it, he desires a noble thing. But it's a high calling too. And I'll tell you this, a little secret, not so secret really, but we who are leaders, and anyone who is a leader in this church knows this, we who are leaders are in a greater position of greater temptation to abuse our authority. We're in a greater position to be hypocrites than others. I mean, our lives are on display, so you get to see the laundry, all of it, the clean and the dirty. So, before we get too hard after these rulers and Pharisees, even though they deserve it, I want to exhort myself. I want to exhort the fellow elders here by our brother, the Apostle Peter, who was himself a fellow elder and one who had seen Christ suffer. And he said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2-4, through 4, he said, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, 
not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's our charge, elders. That's our charge for me. So the rest of you who are not elders or pastors, you know what you need to do? You need to pray for us. Pray for your leaders that we would not walk in hypocrisy, but we would walk in righteousness so that we would be imitatable as we imitate Christ. God, may you help us leaders. But that's not the whole story. After condemning the people, there is one of the rulers who does not respond the same way. And he's still a bit of an enigma. And we talked about him earlier in John chapter 3, where he came to Jesus by night, and Jesus told him that for anyone, including this ruler and Pharisee, to see and enter the kingdom of God, he must be born again. So here, in the midst of this hypocrisy, we see Nicodemus. And his response, I, I still haven't landed on like if that's a real brave thing to say or if he's just trying to avoid most of, the, most of the bullets. But he says to them, he calls out their hypocrisy in one way. He says in verse 51, he says, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? <laughs> what he's pointing out there is one of the marks of hypocrisy is offering an opinion before learning. How many of us have shot our mouth off only to be corrected by righteous truth sometime later? And how many people give Jesus how many people give Jesus an adequate hearing before just forming an opinion about him? It's very easy for leaders to be hypocrites without Jesus. You know what hypocrisy is? Hypocrisy is sin. And that's what sin does. It actually, it, it creates further hypocrisy. And the truth is, we all by nature are hypocrites. Not just the leaders, every single one of us. We are designed by God, created by God, to worship Him and submit to His rule. And when we sin, we are acting hypocritically to that design. And we make decisions that are hypocritical to God's ways. And if we get into positions of power and influence that do not submit to Jesus, whether in politics and government, business, volunteer groups, boards, or even sometimes leadership in the church, we will act hypocritically, demanding of others what we don't or can't or won't do. And so what happens when Jesus comes? Jesus comes to divide righteousness from hypocrisy because they ought, not to be they ought not be together. Before we go on, it has often been said that the church is full of hypocrites who say one thing and do another. And I would have to say, and maybe you can agree, that in, sadly in many cases that is true. And to that I would say, I'm sorry 
for the hypocrisy that is shown by the church to the world. But let's make one thing clear. We're not full of hypocrites. There's more. You can come on in. But on the other hand, before we broad brush everybody and say, ah, you're all just a bunch of hypocrites, so that's why we shouldn't come to church. Who is the hypocrite? I mean, who really is the hypocrite, scripturally speaking? Is the hypocrite, who is the hypocrite? The one who sees Jesus, the Son of God, who we were made by and made for, and rejects him, scoffing him all the way to hell? Or is the hypocrite the one who sees Jesus, the Son of God, who we were made by and for, and bows the knee in repenting faith and confesses that he or she is a sinner who needs God's forgiveness and receives the satisfying drink that only Christ can offer. Who's the hypocrite? The only hypocrite in the church is the person who does not repent when they have sinned. Christ divides righteousness from hypocrisy. But have you noticed what the rulers have said thus far? How true are the things that they shot back at the officers? And then he, they say in verse 52, shot back at Nicodemus, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And then we're going to get to the crowd of people. Is everything that they're saying, should that just be taken on, at face value, on truth, as truth? Number two, Christ divides truth from falsehood. Are you from Galilee too? They say almost as a slur or derogatory slang against Nicodemus. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. <laughs> now, you know they're seeing red, right? They're seeing red, so it probably won't do Nicodemus any good to come back at them, back to them with this. The truth is, hypocrites don't really look for an answer. But what they've just spouted off is something actually untrue about Christ and untrue about God's word which they claim to uphold. No prophet arises from Galilee. Really? Jonah was from Galilee. You can see that in 2 Kings. Nahum was likely from Galilee. And there are other prophets in the Scriptures whose origins aren't known that may have come from Galilee. And there are no, there are no passages in Scripture that say that no prophet, whether the prophet that Moses talked about or any other prophet, no passages say that they can't come from Galilee. They hold on to their falsehood and their prejudices against Christ so much so that they spout off error in defense of their position. And that needs to be divided from truth. That needs to be seen for what it is. It is false. Okay, we've bashed on the rulers for a good bit. What about the crowd, the common people? When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. 
But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. And you, do you see the division? It's pretty clear, right? It's between the truth of who Jesus is. I mean, he is the Christ, as some have here have confessed. And it's between the falsehood of people preforming opinions about him. Some people make the good confession of truth. This is the Christ. And then others they say, wait, 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 wait. I've read my Bible. Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And they might have been tempted, and we can be tempted to think that, well, they just gave a more detailed line of reasoning than the ones who just said, this is the Christ. So they must be correct. The person who speaks the longest and loudest must be right. Huh? No. But beware, they have tipped their hand that they have just bought the lie just like their hypocritical leaders have. Again, these people actually knew a little of their Bibles. Part of what they say <laughs> is technically correct. The scripture does say that Christ comes from the offspring of David. 2 Samuel 7 makes that clear. And yes, the scripture does say that he comes from Bethlehem. Micah 5 verse 2 makes that clear. So what's their problem? They believe that Jesus comes from Galilee, not from Bethlehem. So they disbelieve that Jesus can be the Christ. But is that their only problem? If they just, like... If we ask it this way, if they just knew that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem, if they just knew that, then they would have believed? See, in Christianity, when we give a defense of our faith, it's often called apologetics, making a defense of the Christian faith. Sometimes a single piece of evidence is used by God to flip someone's world right side up. But here's a question. What's the assumption behind giving a defense of the faith? Why would we give a defense of the faith at all? It assumes that someone has come to hear it. And this is what blows my mind, and it should blow your mind too. Do you know what the one thing, neither the, crowd in the, pe neither the people in the crowd who disbelieve nor the religious leaders don't do. Do you know what they don't do? Neither of them bothers to go to the source of truth himself. It is maddening, just maddening to read this and see that so much air could have been cleared if they had just come to Jesus and asked him, Where were you born, Jesus? That's not a shameful question. Have you ever read your Bible and looked up and shook yourself like, what did I just read? Or you were reading and you came across something that's just stopped your tracks in confusion. If that hasn't happened to you, you're either not reading your Bible or you're not reading it right. 
And you ask, like, what in the world do they mean by that? And then, what about when you're asking, and you should be asking this, by the way, how does this apply to me? Like, I can read this and it can make sense on the page, but how does it make sense in my life? What should you do in that moment? What should you do in that time of confusion? What they didn't do. You should come to Jesus and ask him. Just ask him. John 5 talks about this. He says, well, paraphrase this, Pharisees search the scriptures better than all of us. And Jesus says they didn't get it. Not because they were searching the scriptures. That's not a bad thing. But because they didn't finish the search of the scriptures. The end of searching the scriptures is Jesus. Come to him. Ask him. Don't be ashamed to ask him for help. So here's the question then. They don't know that Christ has been born in Bethlehem, which he has. You can check it out in Luke 2. And then he grew up in Galilee. And they don't come to him to ask. Here's the question. Why don't those who have false ideas about Jesus, why don't they come to Jesus for verification? Why don't they come? You know, truth is, some may later. But why don't they come? It, because it means coming to him. And Jesus says that the ones who come to him are the ones who believe him, the ones who are thirsty. And these people don't want to because they don't want to. A river runs down a mountain and hits a rock and just tries to find a way around it. Some of the people in the crowd and most of the rulers don't want to come to Jesus. And the people who are coming to Jesus are those who want to because they believe him when he says he will satisfy thirst. That he will fulfill the promises of God in the new covenant by welling up in them springs of living water. That's what it means when Christ comes, he divides. He divides truth from falsehood. And when confronted with truth versus falsehood, comes right down to it, Christ is dividing this. He's dividing belief from unbelief. Number three, Christ divides belief from unbelief. Have you ever asked this with this kind of passages, passage, and there's others, how intentional is it that Jesus is dividing? I mean, is Jesus' main purpose in coming to split people apart? To divide families, communities, and nations? Well, in a way, the answer is no. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4 says, God... 
that's Christ, desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God doesn't come to the earth to gleefully tear things apart that he made. He never says anything that is divisive, that is simply for the sake of pitting people against each other. No, in fact, when he sees that on the earth, he is grieved by it. He is grieved by the divisive nature of humanity against itself. And he is particularly grieved when that happens in his church. That's why there's so many commands, so many encouragements and calls for unity in the New Testament for the church. He is grieved that anyone, anyone should be against him. But that's just it. The division, become, the division comes because of who he is and what he does. He's the perfect being. God Almighty, who is good and who does good, who is perfect in love, who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and who abundantly blesses those who trust him. And so, we should be grieved as well that people do not want this God. We should be grieved that there are people who would reject him And we should be grieved in this passage that people have plotted his arrest and eventually will secure his death. So no, God is, Jesus' main purpose is not to divide. On the one hand. But on the other hand, Christ is explicit that yes, he did come to divide. Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53. Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Why? Why must this be so? Because God is making a people for himself. And those people who believe in him are no longer part of those who don't want to believe in him. So when he comes and proclaims, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus knows that there are some who don't think they're thirsty. He's God. He knows that there are some who will not believe him and will not receive the promises. But he also knows, and he says it, because he knows that some will. (laughs) And that's good news. For though Christ comes to divide, he is dividing so that he might bring out of darkness a people who live in the light. 
He is not proclaiming so that every so that everyone would stay united, and you could really that's really loosely united. That everyone would stay united in sin against the God who loves him, loves them. He did not suffer rejection so that we would remain forever rejected by God. He did not die on the cross so that we would continue in our condemnation. No. What did He do? He came to set us free. And freedom must be divided from enslavement. Light must be separated from darkness. Holiness must be separated from unholiness. Goodness must be separated from evil. Love must be separated from hatred. See, this passage seems to have a lot to say about those who are divided against Jesus, who don't believe him, or only get partway like those who think he's the prophet. That's close. It's not quite there yet. And frankly, as I say this is fat this week, and maybe you hearing it, this can, some of this can be discouraging. We need to hear it because we need to know that we are not exempt from division when it comes to Jesus. I mean, the first is, now that he has come, do you believe him? I mean, do you believe him? Do you really believe him? And if you have believed him, you have what he promised. You have received his Holy Spirit who makes rivers of living water come out of you. And as much as we might like to think that everyone would be glad for those living waters pouring out of us, the waters smell and taste like Christ. So when, not if, when you are praising the Lord Jesus and making Him known in both word and deed, and you see division take place, do not be afraid. Yes, it may be awkward and sad, but you must remember that they are not dividing against you, but against their best and only hope, who is Christ. What should you do? You should pray. You should pray for those who divide against Jesus and bless those who curse you. And remember that Christ, though he was rejected by many, was gladly received and believed by many. And he can do similar things through you. This passage does speak about the reality of Christ dividing. But how much more scripture speaks about Christ uniting all things under himself? Making a new people giving them life, completing the mission both now and at the end of, the day, end of days to the praise of His glorious grace. That's why He divides, so that in all things Christ might be preeminent and glorified. When Christ comes, He divides. But these things are written, as John has said before, and I will repeat again, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. 
as I studied this passage this last week, I ran across a comment made by um, a former pastor with a commentary on the Gospel of John, R. Kent Hughes, and he wrote, Massive change is taking place today. A complete redirection of our culture. Those who follow Christ are going to find themselves subject to increasing pressure and alienation. The division that Christ brings is going to become more pronounced. The lines will be sharply defined. Christ will be everything to individuals or he will be nothing. Those who drink from the fountains of secularism will be unfilled and empty. But those who drink of Christ, those drinking of Christ will overflow. The changes facing us in society, he continues, demand that we become great drinkers of the water that only Christ gives. For only those who follow him have great power and vitality in their lives. When Christ comes, he divides. But he be reminded that he divides only that which is necessary. So when it comes the time for you to be in the room where Christ is where Christ comes and divides and is spoken of in a praiseworthy or honoring way. Do not be afraid. Trust Him. No. No one ever spoke like this man. He levels mountains, raises valleys, parts seas, cuts rivers, and He makes hearts of flesh out of hearts of stone. He makes life where there was only death. He makes reception where there was only rejection. And he makes a people for himself, those who believe, who will never be divided from him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that it is not easy in our day to hear about you dividing there seems like so much division and we want to talk more about unity. But Lord, we also must confess and know that you are the one who brings unity and it must come when you separate that which is, you, when you separate your people from those who are not your people. Those who believe you and those who reject you. And Lord, we do pray. We pray that that number who reject you, Lord, we pray that that number would be so small. We pray for our neighbors that they would not be divided against you. We pray for our friends, possibly friends that we're going to see in school coming up, that they would not be divided against you. We pray for our family that they would not be divided against you. We pray for our co-workers that they would not be divided against you. Because it is true, you have come to satisfy our thirst. You have come to save, not to condemn. You've come to set free, not to put the people in shackles. We're already in shackles apart from you. And that's how you divide. You divide the chains. Lord, praise you for that. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, including myself, and I pray, Lord, that we would not be ashamed of you. 
that you would give us courage and boldness and love to not keep you hidden away. Help us to shine you. And in shining you, Lord, we <laughs> help us be reminded that we are not the hypocrites for doing so. Though we sin we might have to confess to you. Let us help us confess those to you and turn away that we might be people who more and more reflect your Son. We thank you for the grace to believe your word. We ask, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and work on our hearts today and each day. Lord, help us to continue to worship you as you deserve. For you are the one to whom we can come and satisfy our thirst and be filled with rivers of living water and flow from us to bless others. We pray all these things in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen.